it's December 1982. This is the Shape Table Podcast, and I'm Rob, your host. Welcome back to the show. Sorry, it's been a bit of a delay. It's beginning in March 2022 as I record this. A lot of bad stuff going on, and I had to take a mental health break for a little bit. You know, it's okay to turn off the news, turn off Twitter, and it's never too late to delete the hellscape that is Facebook. We do what we can, you know, and I can contribute to charities that I believe in. My partner is fond of reminding me that worrying is like a rocking chair. It takes a lot of energy, and it feels like you're doing something when you're doing it, but when you get out of the chair, you've gone nowhere. But anyway, I'm coming out of it a little bit. I sat down and recorded some magazines, so why don't we just get started? First up is Soft Talk. This is volume three, number four, for December 1982. $3 on the cover price, you know, and they still haven't addressed the raising of the price from 250 to $3 back in the October issue. I would have thought they would have at least mentioned it in one of these last three issues. And, you know, spoiler alert, they don't say anything in this issue either. So I guess they're just not going to address it. And this is the longest soft talk we've seen to date, 344 pages. It seems like they've been increasing 40 or 50 pages every episode for the last four or five issues. You might remember back in September, it was only 226 pages. And now we're, you know, over 100 more. It's the usual style soft talk cover. This month's colors are pink for the lettering and a light gray for the shadow. And of course, it's got the you know tilted globe with the apple in the middle of it on the right of the um, title text. The image is of Jim Henson. It's got a picture of him, Kermit the Frog, Moki from Fraggle Rock, and a character from The Dark Crystal, Agra, the Keeper of Secrets, which I vaguely remember. I remember seeing Dark Crystal, but I don't remember the names. But it's kind of a vaguely humanoid sort of gnarled face creature with like kind of gray, poofy hair. Yeah, I don't remember Dark Crystal very much. I've heard several people say it's a lot better in your memory than it is in reality, so don't go back and watch it. The text on the title says Stocking Stuffers, and this is a big, like almost 100-page section in the magazine that lists a bunch of you know recommendations for stuff that we'll get to. Also on the text, it says Ha Muppets, you know, an article about how the apple is used in the creation of the Muppet process. And the, it says exec TG, so that's the exec column that we're used to talking about TG products, which is a you know joystick and peripheral manufacturer. Well, we'll get to that. And the table of contents, yeah, they talk about the main stuff, the TG products, the visit with the Muppets, the stocking stuffer section, and in the categories it lists uh, games, business, communications, education, graphics, home slash hobby, utilities, word processing, Apple III, books, accessories, and hardware. So it's a huge, huge section, almost 100 pages of, of recommendations and stuff. There's an article, the new levels of Applesoft. It says several new packages extend Applesoft to even higher levels. And finally, in the feature, last feature section is Once Upon an Apple. It says how Lucasfilm chose apples for filmmaking. So that'll be an interesting article when we get there. They got all the regular departments. Of course, my favorite assembly lines is there. We've got the graphically speaking column by Mark Pelzarski. The final in the impenetrable series on Graphforth, the animated apple. We've got the regular contests. And some other stuff we'll get to when we get there. The teaser in next month's soft talk, it says pterodactyls are alive and well in Watsonville. So I have no what that, well, no idea what that is. That'll be fun to find out. The exact column is going to be about sublogic, which also will be fun. And then less interesting stuff, you know, in these modern days, they have a modem times, a telecommunications comprehensive. And it also lists word processing and more. So hopefully the and more includes lots of games. The contest this month is called Oracle 83. It says, you've all been waiting for it, and it's finally here. The Monster Contest, end all monster contests, for 1982 anyway. 
Yep, it's Oracle 83, the contest that awards six prizes throughout the year and the one biggie at the beginning of 1984. But best of all, the grand prize winner will be named the Soft Talk Oracle of 1983, a title coveted by 16K and 128K users alike. It says, rules, none. No rules, they're too confining. Just look at what we want you to predict and do the best you can. So hurry, have to get your entries in before December 31st, 1982. No exceptions. And the prize is their usual $100 worth of products by any of the Soft Talk advertisers for the winner of each part. And so there's seven questions, and here they are. Question number one. Predict the day and month that Apple will officially announce the release of a new personal model Apple computer, or predict they won't. If they release more than one, only the first one counts. It says minus one point for every day off the mark, and minus 365 if they announce one and you said they wouldn't. Number two, need to name the teams that make the final four in the NCAA basketball tournament. Plus five for each team, minus five for each wrong guess, and plus 10 if you predict the winner. Number three, who will win the Academy Awards in the category of best actor, actress, and picture. Plus 10 points for each and plus 20 for getting all three correct. Number four, the sex, region of origin, i.e. east, midwest, west, south, or foreign, and the winning time of the Kentucky Derby winner. Plus one point for a cult, plus 20 if it's a Philly, minus 10 if you blow it, plus five for region, minus one for every one-fifth of a second off the time. Yikes, that seems harsh. Plus 25 bonus points for naming the horse, (laughs) which seems like a low figure for getting the correct name and plus 15 for the jockey also seems a little low question five predict the high temperature in san jose california on july 4th 1983 minus one point for each degree fahrenheit off the mark number six the earliest presidential candidacy declaration for republican and democratic parties made by september 30th 1983 plus 10 points per valid declare minus five points for everyone you name who doesn't declare by then and finally number seven the five companies that will appear most frequently in SoftTalk's top 30 throughout 1983, plus five points per company, plus 20 bonus points for guessing the correct number of appearances of the top company. And then it says, list your predictions on a sheet of paper and send them in with this coupon filled out, name, address, city, state, zip, phone number, the closest dealer that you have, and I predict that I would like blank as my prize if I should win any part of the contest. And send it to SoftTalk Oracle 83, Box 60, North Hollywood, California, 91603. Postmarked before December 31st of 1982, so you better hurry. In the contest winners, the Oracle 82 entry in this one is was the date of the first no-hitter of the 1982 Major League Baseball season. They said a tech, common technique was to find the worst-hitting team and the day they're scheduled to face the team with the best pitching staff. And that might work, but as it turned out, there were no no-hitters that year. It said 40 of the contestants said there wouldn't be a no-hitter. And the random number generator yanked out C. Engler of Nutley, New Jersey as the winner. And it said her plan was to pick up a cool stack from FJM as her prize. And it says next month we'll see who most accurately predicts the breakdown in the U.S. Congress after the November elections. The famous Apples in History contest that ran in June is finally over, it says. And Susan C. West of Coolville, Ohio is the winner. I don't know if you remember a couple issues ago, the September had a finals where they listed... 12 entries, and hers was the one voted as the reader's favorite. She said collecting her prize will be an adventure because Coolville population 500 is not exactly a metropolitan area, so she's going to have to drive two hours to Columbus to get the micro center. She said visiting the micro center is a regular trip. We usually carpool down there and make a day of it. Excellent way to spend a day. The Name the Shapes contest from also back in the September issue said they got a mountain of entries, 
They disqualified one for having a late postmark and another for having misspelled soft talk three times. Say a pro tip, don't misspell somebody's name if you're sending it in to them for a contest. The winner was John Morrison of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, who missed only six of the possible 92 shapes. And I, I know it was hard back when I did the September issue, you know, I tried to hold the magazine up to the microphone as close as I could. But some of the shapes were really pretty tough. They said the perhaps the trickiest shapes were number 13 and number 88. So that only a handful of contestants were able to identify the Ornithopter and the Island of Crete, respectively. They said, but we did get some interesting answers, parentheses, wild guesses, from desperate entrance. To some, the Ornithopter looked like one of the following. A city skyline, a bedfly, a squashed Apple computer, a dead horse, a fly in a fly swatter, a plane from Crop Duster, abstract nothingness, Lego blocks, and beats the H out of me, directly quoting. And some last-ditch guesses for Crete was the floor after Rumpelstiltskin's name was guessed by the Queen, God Only Knows, Statue of Liberty, Rubber Chicken, Loch Ness, Dead Bodies, Cuba, Israel, Ronald Reagan, Foot Measuring Tool, and finally, Smurf Action, which I apologize is now something that exists in my brain and yours. They then point out a few mistakes they made. One was the computer punch card, which was number 74, had the holes going the wrong way. That the French whore, number 73, had no mouthpiece. And that Randy Mita of Palos Verdes Estates, California, was the only person to specify that the film was 70 millimeter film and not some other dimension of film. Then they, (laughs) they went on, they went dunking on a bunch of people that got some wrong answers. The Newton's Cradle received as many different guesses as there were contestants, they said. But they call out Sean Walter of Kansas City, Missouri. See you at Kansas Fest. Called him a series of pendulums used to show action and reaction. My grandparents have one, but I don't know the name of it. You can call them at and then gives them a number and said, well, we called them collect. We said our name was Sean. And now Sean's grandparents have written him off their Christmas list. There's a hexagon that Lou Seaboke said was a pencil as seen looking from the point to the eraser. They said the United Nations building seemed to confuse a lot of people. Said Patricia Highland and Daryl Smith of Fayetteville, North Carolina, and Colorado Springs, Colorado, respectively, thought it looked like a breakfast setting with a box of cereal. The Guggenheim Museum was mistaken by Kathy Rowe of Woodbine, Maryland, to be the Apple Computer Headquarters. But they said, don't feel bad, Kathy. Matt Bateman of Central Point, Oregon, thought it was Willy Wonka's Chocolate Factory. But they said the non-prize in the category of, honestly, at the risk of embarrassing oneself, goes to Judy Webb of Iowa Park, Texas, who wrote, I got the encyclopedia down and looked up Madison Square Garden, hoping it would be one of the buildings. It isn't. I don't travel much to the West Coast. I believe they must come from there. And they reply, that's very inductive, Judy. Come out to California and we'll show you where those buildings aren't. Robert Huggins of Raleigh, North Carolina, found a new way to spell candelabra, which was candle opera. Larry Tentor of Schenectady, New York, couldn't spell Rorschach, but instead gave it an honest try. R-O-S-T-O-P-C-H-I-N. All right. And Jonathan Scott of Myrtle Beach, South Carolina, visited Florence, Italy to see the statue of David by Donatello. I say, did everyone get the Jefferson Memorial, which is number 65? Said Ken Hayden entered the Lincoln Memorial as seen from the side. Sneaky. Ken also sneaked in a whole bunch of other wrong answers. <laughs> they are throwing some shade here. Henry Shi of Erie, Pennsylvania, looked at shape number 40 and entered a jar of ink or nose drops. He said, we gave you credit for the ink, Henry. Just don't get them mixed up next time you're congested. He said, New Jersey isn't as prominent a state as its residents would like to believe. Said Warren Zane of Honolulu said it was Alaska, and Henry Schneider of San Rafael, California called it an ink blot. He said Eric Wade of Yamas Springs, New Mexico said, if you would have won, you've only won $99.01 worth of goods instead of the usual 100 because your entry arrived with nine cents postage due. And the final dunking is reserved for 
poor Sirius software. He said, although most people recognize Sirius's grud, which is entry number 54, other guesses included Dumbo the Elephant, the moose from the Ed Sullivan Show, and E.T. But the most daring contestant of all was Jeff Sosumi Nehart from Kingston, New York, who had the audacity to uh, identify the grud as the man from Broderbund's ads. And then it goes to list all correct answers for the 92 questions that they asked. So yeah, the contests were always one of my favorite parts of Soft Talk, and I wish other magazines had had the humor to do this stuff. I'm sure it was a lot of work, you know, to get in all the entries, tabulate it all, but still, these are, yeah, always one of my favorite parts of the magazine, as I'm sure you're getting tired of me saying. In the middle of their Fast Talk section, you know, the list of all the sort of notable programs and the bunch of categories, there's an ad for the game Monster Mash that I've seen before. It's kind of amateurish art. It's in a Looks like graveyard and there's some gravestones and there's someone hiding behind a gravestone, I guess. And the, the way the game plays, well, in fact, we'll do a live play here. The game is available on Total Replay. As usual, I'll include a link in the show notes for Total Replay's latest version. And that's the title screen, Monster Mash by David Eisler. And then here we go. It's an overhead view of a graveyard. You have two controls. One is to change fences. They, the gates go up and down. And another is to smash the gravestones to flatten these monsters. So the monsters come in from the top. The fences that you use open and close that direct the monsters either down when they're open or across to the right when they're closed. And you try to get them underneath the gravestones and smash them. So that was wave one completed. The game continues until you let 10 monsters escape. It's a fun little game. I remember seeing this and coming back to it. Is It's the nice little pick-up-and-play game. It was eventually ported to the Atari and named Monster Smash, and it plays almost identically, except it has a nice theme song that this one doesn't really have. Again, as I usually do, I'm going to skip the fast talk because there's, I, it's hard to tell what's changed from the last uh, issue. And yeah, it's like, it's 13 pages and half of that's ads. And yeah, it's always, it's just hard for me to tell what's, What's changed from the last one, so I don't pay that much attention. The open discussion section is long as usual, covers parts of nine pages across 18 in the magazine, so lots of ads. And we'll see if Mike finds anything interesting in this reader comment section. The three pages of classified ads have their usual wide variety of stuff. There's betting programs for horse racing and baseball. There's various sketchy places advertising, like dealer prices for discs and software. There's a few hardware products like Disc 2 Diagnostics and the external volume control for the Apple speaker. And there's some really just esoteric stuff like a hurricane tracker and the Farm Weather Center from Climate Assessment Technologies in Houston, Texas. And then there's an ad for their sister magazine, Softline, that I've heard is covered in an Atari podcast that maybe I'll have to get to in this podcast at some point. And then we come to the exec article. This is TG Products. It's subtitled Joy to the World. It's about this. So they, they do a lot of you know peripherals and controllers and things. The article's by David Hunter, and he talks to the founder, Ted Gilliam, and the operations manager, Terry Lewis. The opening, like, eight paragraphs are all about how it's a Texas company, and everything in Texas is big. Hats are big, cars are big, airports are big, and talk is big. And most of the residents are big-hearted. But that Ted Gilliam is a damn Yankee. And he's also the man behind the initials of TG Products. The article says Ted Gilliam came to the Dallas area in 1977 working as a regional manager of software services at some Fortune 500 company called Perkin Elmer. I said by 1979, he wanted a personal computer and then got it on an Apple for Christmas that year. I guess gifted it to himself. 
The article says, soon after he got his Apple, he got the idea of making a joystick. And he said, I figured if I could sell one, I could take the computer off my taxes as a business expense. Says he took his first working joystick to a local store, which took it on consignment. Had some success with that and then decided to expand his market. So when he traveled for work, he would take the joysticks in his suitcase and show it to computer stores on the road. And it said in March 1930, he had his first sort of big order, which was 24 joysticks to Computerland in Cleveland. And he said those early joysticks were homemade and ugly, but they sold, saying he used grocery money to buy the parts to fill the initial orders. He said by Christmas 1980, the business was doing well. And then in January of 81, Muse released ABM, which was written with joystick control in mind. And we talked about ABM in episode, what, 13 of the podcast quite a while ago. But that game in particular caused the orders to go through the roof, it says. Joyce, his wife, helped process the orders, and his son Richard wrote the program that was used for invoicing. And so early on in 81, he decided to expand, and that's when he met Terry Lewis, who was a native of Austin, where I went to school, Okamorns. Terry Lewis apparently was in charge of one of the companies he contracted out with to help make the joysticks, but then they decided it was the business was going well enough that they decided to combine their efforts. And at that point, the TG Incorporated was going well enough that he quit his day job and began running TG Incorporated full-time. Says Lewis is now the role of operations manager, and they're adding four to five employees a month. It seems like they have a non-traditional work environment because it seems like it's spread out because it says, people from a local sheltered workshop for the handicapped in Allen, Texas, do some of the assembly work. And other TG employees include local women who have small children and prefer to work at home says these workers come in each day for parts and work at their leisure. So that's an interesting business model at that time, sort of distributed manufacturing. says they're always looking to stay ahead, and they're enhancing their own products for the Apple, as well as expanding into other markets. It says they no longer use a ribbon cable with their joysticks, they now use a molded cable. They're simplifying packaging, and still, though insisting on maintaining quality of their product and its long reliability. It says he uses the same buttons today that he used in the beginning, good for one to two million cycles. Said an interesting quality story was that he ordered apparently some custom made potentiometer shafts that were too long. Said he had 5,000 of them and the bill was huge and couldn't return them, and so he had to use a hacksaw to cut them all down. Said it took a solid week in the garage and the whole time wondering what they were going to do if they didn't work. But fortunately, they did. They're expanding enough that they had to hire a marketing person because Ted Gilliam had been doing the advertising and marketing himself, but they Stole away Don Geyer from Gabelli Software as the marketing person now. The author here quotes that a full quarter of all the apples have one of one or more of TG's products. I don't know how they arrived at that, but it says with the arrival of a, a new trackball, the figure may become one-third. I don't know, that's unsourced. I don't know how they would actually determine if that's a true figure or what. In conclusion, they say they're very guarded about the plans for the future of TG, but they say going into the software business is not unlikely saying they can't rely on a software publisher to, you know, be the impetus for somebody to buy some of their products. Next, we come to the recurring column, The Basic Solution by William V.R. Smith. And in it, he develops uh, about a 200-line basic program for draw poker. It's, uh, it's in the text screen. It's not graphic at all, but it's, it's supposed to have the basic rules of five-card draw. The next article continues with the AppleSoft basic stuff. It, there's a, it's called AppleSoft Makes a Level. It's all about AppleSoft pre-processors and utilities. It opens Pity the Poor Basic Programmer, politely condescended to by aficionados of Pascal, left in the silicon dust of super-serious assembly jockeys. The humble computer monoglot quietly makes do with a language that's easy to learn, but slow, unstructured, and on the Apple, not even all there. It goes on to summarize three types of program packages 
that have been designed to fill the various gaps and limitations in AppleSoft Basic. There's ways to improve the structure of the language. There's ways to get around Apple's limited editor. And there's utilities to add missing commands. So Basic Prime from Delta Microsystems extends Basic Syntax. And what it really is, is it's a, uh, it's a preprocessor. It's, you write it in this language without line numbers, and then it translates it into AppleSoft with all the you know, regular line numbers and stuff. But it adds things like case statements, repeat until, you know, that kind of stuff to make it a more higher level structured language. In order to do that, you have to use its own editor. It's called Editor Prime, which they say is, you know, it's obviously better than doing stuff with line numbers, but it says it's kind of slow and especially scrolling in a large program bogs it down. Another in this same vein is the Symbolic Basic Translator, which it doesn't really add any syntax, it says, but it allows more, like, comments and allows longer variable names. So, you know, makes the program more readable. But the downside of this is it requires an editor and it does not include one. So you've got to get another editor somewhere else. And conveniently, they talk about some editors next. There's GPLE, the Global Program Line Editor from Synergistic Software, and MacroSCED, S-C-E-D, from Computer Stations. They're both editors that also allow macros that in this case mean like, you know, multiple characters grouped together that you type at the same time. Not like not like macros in the sense of like a, a macro assembler. The final category of stuff it talks about is extending AppleSoft, and there's a program called the Routine Machine from Southwestern Data Systems, which essentially uses the ampersand hook in AppleSoft Basic to add a whole bunch of new stuff. Apparently, the advantage of this over other systems is that it has a whole bunch of stuff, but you only load the things that you want, so you don't have to bog down all of your memory with routines that you don't use. And at the end of the article, it gives contact information and pricing for all the stuff listed here in the article. One of the ads in that article was from the Beagle Brothers, and this one is Beagle Brothers Indoor Sports, advertising the Beagle Bag 12 games plus one, 12 games plus on one disc, and not copy protected. That was the big thing. These are all listable basic programs that can teach programming skills. Only 29 bucks, 50 cents, available at your Apple dealer now, or phone for immediate delivery. My favorite column's next, Assembly Lines by Roger Wagner. This is part 27. Although, I must admit that these last several have not been my favorite topic because they're talking about the floating point accumulator and how to use floating point numbers from machine language. And, you know, my focus has always been kind of game writing and you really don't use floating point in game writing. But so this is a, you know, his usual great writing and detailed commented um, assembly listings and stuff. But it's just not a huge topic that I'm interested in. It's four pages and it covers a lot of detail. He says you, you won't really expect a lot of speed-ups calling the floating point stuff from machine language just because the, the floating point calculations aren't any faster. The basic, when it calls these routines, already uses this, this these multiplication and other floating point routines. So you don't really get a lot of speed-up. It's just if you need to call floating point stuff from machine language, this is how you do it. So hoping he gets back to more stuff applicable to games in the future here. And as usual, I'll include a link to Chris Torrance's site to buy the book, Assembly Lines, that he edited and combined all the Assembly Line articles into a single awesome reference. I use it quite a bit. It's right here on my shelf. There's an article on some business software that we're going to skip, and then we come to the Graphically Speaking article by Mark Pelsarski. And here he's going to start to work on a machine language character generator. A couple issues ago, he worked on that basic character generator, and so he's going to extend that and you know make it fast in a machine language version. He starts this article, though, saying that most of this one is really just going to be basics about machine language, and then he's not going to get into the writing the character generator until the next issue. He talks a little bit about machine language and how to use some of the addressing modes, you know, the indirect address 
to you know work around some of the weirdness of the Apple II graphics layout, and then also how to use another indirect address to point to the character table entry where you store the bitmaps of the characters that you're going to use. It has a pretty in-depth description of how to store the character table entries, you know, the bitmaps for each character, and how you can store on each 256-byte page, you can store 32 characters. And it goes through some of the multiplication to get that. And so this whole article is kind of like a primer for what's going to be the next article. You know, he's, he's describing the basic way to do it and has a few kind of small examples in machine language and then a few examples in basic just to kind of, you know, help visualize some of the stuff. And then next issue, it looks like he's really going to get into the meat of it. So yeah, I'll be looking forward to that next uh, issue. It looks like, you know, because I wrote that character generator for um, Kansas Fest one year, I wrote a sort of a code generator to do it because the way I did it is not typical. It's actually, it's pretty fast. It's faster than this way to do it. So instead of storing characters in consecutive bytes, uh, you store like the, the top line of each character in consecutive bytes. And then the next, you know, the next row uh, scan line of each character is stored in the next. So you have like, however big your character set is probably, you know, I think I'd set it up as 256 characters. So it takes a lot of memory, you know, it takes eight pages in RAM to store a 256 byte character set. But by laying it, laying the memory out this way, you can get a much faster display on the screen than you can by having to increment each time for a particular character, because you can have it, it's kind of an unrolled loop. Um, yeah, I don't know, maybe I'll link to the, the talk I did in, at Kansas Fest, if you're interested in that, I'll, I'll include a link in the show notes to my character generator program that was called AssemGen. It's a Python program that generates machine language output. The next article is the feature article about the Muppets. And it's called, unsurprisingly, The Muppet Article. It's by Roe R. Adams III. And it's a really detailed history of the forming of the Muppets all the way through the current day, how they expanded their empire. But have no fear, there's some Apple II content that we'll get to. The article opens talking about a TV show called Sam and Friends, first airing on WRC-TV in Washington, D.C. in 1954. Said it featured Sam, York, Mushmelon, and Kermit. The show ran for eight years and received a local Emmy in 1958, and it said the show's characters were created by Jim Henson and Jane Nebel, who married in 1959. They were students at the University of Maryland, and they had this, it was a five-minute program, apparently, that essentially was the precursor to the Muppets. Apparently during college, they the Muppets were performed as like an underground bit for the college students, so it was, it was definitely adult. In 1961, Don Saline and Jerry Jewell joined with them, Don Saline was the creator of most of the Muppets. He's the one who built the early ones, apparently, and then Jerry Jewell is a writer. And in 1964, Frank Oz joined, and Jim Henson said that the main reasons that the Muppets are funny is because of Frank Oz's unusual perception of life. The story says the first big appearance on network TV was on the Jack Parr show in 1964, and then the first sort of big touch with fame was a dog food commercial starring Ralph the Dog. And then Ralph became a regular on the Jimmy Dean show in 1965. In 1969, Sesame Street burst on the air, it says, and that the thrust of the show was revolving around the interaction between people and the Muppets. If you're listening to the podcast, I assume you know what the, what Sesame Street characters are. We're definitely the generation that grew up with this stuff. But they said most of the characters were brand new. So, you know, Ernie and Bert, Cookie Monster, Grover, Guy Smiley, you know, The Count, Sherlock Hemlock, which I don't really remember. Of course, I remember The Count. My parents always said I could always tell when the count was coming because I would kind of start to slide off the end of the couch and kind of move to behind the couch and peek. And then when the count came up, I would like you know, only peer around the corner because he was the scary character. 
Other favorites, of course, Snuffleupagus, Big Bird, and one of the favorites, Oscar the Grouch. The next big leap for the Muppets was the Muppet Show, and this was a collaboration between the Hansons and the Muppet Crew and the National Lampoon, or folks from the National Lampoon. And so the article takes a bit of a diversion and talks about the Harvard Lampoon, which was sort of the precursor to the National Lampoon. National Lampoon was a magazine kind of spinoff of the Harvard Lampoon. And of course, we remember stuff like National Lampoon's Vacation and other movies and things. I don't really remember the National Lampoon magazine, but of course, you know, some other other stuff I do remember. So Chris Cerf and Michael Frith were part of the Harvard Lampoon. And it notes, incidentally, that many years later, Lisa Henson, one of Jim and Jane's daughters, became the first woman president of the Harvard Lampoon. Chris Cerf joined the Children's Television Workshop and sort of provided that in for the Hensons and the Muppets to Sesame Street. And then Michael Frith joined the Hensons to become the art director, and it says that much of the look of The Muppet Show is credited to him. The Muppet Show began in 1976 and ran for five seasons, 120 episodes. The only character the article mentions is Miss Piggy, but of course, in addition to her, I remember, you know, Stadler Waldorf and Sam the Eagle, Swedish Chef, you know, all those things. I grew up on The Muppet Show. And interesting doing a little research on The Muppet Show, no guest star ever appeared twice on The Muppet Show, so it must have been quite an honor. The article continues on and mentions Emmett Otter's Jug Band Christmas, and mentioned that in 1978, as the Muppet movie was being made, Chris Cerf discovered the Apple II and the blossoming Henson Empire would never be the same. Apparently his wife Genevieve was an electrical engineer and computer scientist, and so Chris Cerf was sort of aware of computers, but in 1978, of course, the Apple II was more available, and it said it wasn't long before their mid-Manhattan townhouse was replete with computers and peripherals, including an Alpha Centauri music synthesizer and an Apple graphics tablet. Said he even did the original programming for the first educational games based on Muppet characters. Said Chris Surf became the present day Johnny Appleseed, planting his enthusiastic feeling about Apple computers throughout the Henson Empire. So the scriptwriters began using the Apple to write scripts, and it wasn't unusual to see the director walking around set with the rolled up copy of the latest script hot off the Epson printer. At Henson Associates, the article says Apples play key roles in everyday business affairs, including word processing, accounting, and forecasting and trend analysis. The article also mentions that at the Sesame Place theme parks, Apple's produced sound effects and maintain databases of all the park activities. Henson and Associates are also involved in game software, so they talk about the computer adaptation of the film Dark Crystal. And it talks about how the film itself is a much different aesthetic than the Muppets, but you know how it was animated using the same kind of puppetry. Apparently due to their familiarity with Apple's, they took what the article calls a bold move, and they expanded into the microcomputer games market. So Hanson and Associates decided to adapt Dark Crystal to the Apple, and that at the time, Online Systems was the chief publisher of high-res graphic adventures, it says. So the Henson folks talked with Roberta Williams, who's quoted as saying, This adventure isn't like any we've done before. It says that the Henson Associates people sketch each page of the action, and sends it to me and my people to translate the sketches onto Apple with graphics tablets. It says then she sends the high-res pages back to the Henson folks for their approval, and she said, everyone in New York helps out. We plan on having the game finished and available to coincide with the release of the movie at Christmas time. IMDb says the movie was released on December 17th, 1982, so, you know, this is the December issue, so you know, as this issue was hitting the streets, probably it was still in advance of the movie being released. And I haven't found a good release date of the game itself. But I haven't seen an ad for it yet in any of these previous soft talks that we've looked at. The article finishes up talking about Fraggle Rock and how the Apple II is helping the internationalization of the show. 
So for example, in the UK version of the show, they talk about sharing scripts via modem from the writers in the United States and the writers in Wales. So it's quite a detailed article, you know, 11 pages in the magazine. Of course, there's, you know, five or so pages of ads, but there's a lot of nice pictures as well of the various stages of the sort of Muppet evolution. So yeah, definitely recommended reading if you're a Muppet fan. The Mind Your Business column by Peter Oliveri talks about printers and word processors and stuff. All the printer brands that I remember, you know, Epson, Okidata, Centronics, Brother, and it talks a little bit about a few word processors, including Screenwriter 2, which we have seen ads in the past about, you know, touting its software 70-column screen and, you know, not needing any extra hardware to display, you know, a wider screen. Next, we come to the animated Apple with Graphworth column. This is part four by Paul Ludis and Phil Thompson. And Force remains pretty impenetrable. This one's all about 3D graphics, and it has some of the you know, translation rotation scaling that's necessary to do uh, 3D graphics. It's mostly from the uh, like a high-level perspective, but it being forth, yeah, it's pretty hard to decipher for me. There's the Ventures with Visicalc column by Joe Shelton that yeah, we're going to kind of skip as usual because despite Visicalc being sort of the killer app for the Apple, I'd rather talk about games and stuff. And conveniently, the next article is the Stocking Stuffer's Guide. And the first one it talks about is games. So this is the 80-page section in all the different categories. First one being games, which we will cover in moderate detail. And the subsequent categories of business, communications, education, graphics, home and hobby utilities, word processing, Apple III, books, accessories, and hardware, we will discuss in varying levels of interest. We are quite interested in the games, however. It's broken up by publisher, and it, it lists a lot of stuff. Each publisher gets varying numbers of column inches, sort of depending on the number of games that they they list here. It doesn't purport to be a complete list of everything by every publisher ever, although the only criteria it says is are the manufacturer's descriptions of their wares. It's kind of implying that, you know, they've asked for manufacturers to send them stuff. It says, we haven't tried all of them. We leave it to you to determine relative gift value. And it says, here's what you can assume in terms of basic requirements. So 48K memory, AppleSoft, 80-column printer if printer is needed, DOS 3.3, and one disk drive. And it says a requirement for AppleSoft and ROM can be satisfied with the language card. There's nothing more specific about how they determine who to accept, who to not to accept, or if they are missing any manufacturers. There's a big old list, though. A lot of the manufacturers seem to be small. They just have, like, one entry. The first big one is Adventure International, listing, you know, all the Scott Adams graphics adventures, as well as other stuff that they have, you know, like... Eliminator and Rear Guard by John Anderson. We talked about Rear Guard in episode 25 of the podcast and how there was also a version for the Atari that was not nearly as good as the Apple II version. And I'm not going to go over, you know, all 19 pages of the games. I'll maybe call out some ones that are interesting, like from Artsy, there's the Best of Bob Bishop. This is a package of nine of Bob's best offerings. Five are high, fast-paced, high-res action games. Two are animated classics, Apple Vision and Apple Movie. And the audiovisual favorites, Talking Calculator and Music Kaleidoscope for $39.95. Avalon Hill has a whole bunch of simulations, probably 20 or so, including a port of Tank Ticks, which is developed by a programmer famous in the Atari world named Chris Crawford. You know, Atari folks don't have the same kind of famous people that Apple has. You know, there's no Steve Wozniak comparable person in the Atari land. It was much more of a group effort, and their famous names are people like Jay Miner, Joe DeCure, Doug Newbauer, George McLeod people that most Apple folks like us haven't heard of. 
Interestingly, some names you may have heard of, thanks to their fame from the Atari 2600 and Activision, Hal Miller, Larry Kaplan, and Bob Whitehead were among the people who did some software work for the 800 and 400 development systems. And then, you know, of course, left as some of the co-founders of Activision when Atari wouldn't credit them with credits on their games that they designed and developed and made lots of money for the Atari company. But Atari is sort of famous for their poor management decisions, and this reluctance to credit authors ultimately created the whole third-party ecosystem for, well, in this case, it was for a console system, but Activision was trying to do for the 2600 what all these companies here were doing for the Apple II. Getting back to the article, they have the listing for the Beagle Brothers. The only one is the Beagle Bag right now at this time. Obviously, the Beagle Brothers create a whole bunch more software as time goes on. So the Beagle Bag is uh, 12 listable games, noted as unprotected for $29.50. Broderbund is next and has a whole big list of Broderbund stuff. My favorite is probably Starblazer by Tony Suzuki that I've mentioned a bunch of times previously. And I haven't really done a full review of Starblazer. I will have to do that at some point. But it has, you know, David's Midnight Magic, Apple Panic, and of course, one of the most famous games of all time, Choplifter by Dan Gorlin. More so than most others we've encountered so far, a fair number of Broderbund software titles require a joystick. Most of the software publishers list where they're from, and a lot of them are from California. There's an oddball here, cross-educational software from Ruston, Louisiana. It has a game called Dinosaurs and a Blitzkrieg 2, which is a fast, high-res war game, it says, between you and the bombers. I don't know either of those, haven't played them. From Datamost, we have about 15 or 20 entries, including a f- the famous Money Munchers by Bob Bishop and Aztec by Paul Stevenson. They list Epics slash Automated Simulations. This is kind of the transition point from Automated Simulations to Epics. And there's probably 10 programs. Crush, Crumble, and Chomp and the Temple of Apsi are kind of the most famous ones that I know of. We have Gabelli Software by the famous Nasser Gabelli. I think most of his best work, at least in my opinion, was developed under in serious software. That's certainly the stuff I remember better. You know, like Gorgon, Space Eggs, and that kind of stuff. Here they have Zenith, Horizon 5, Exit, and Neptune by him, and then various other games by some other authors, like Phaser Fire, Ruski Duck, High Orbit, and Laser Silk. A good number of the entries, probably an eighth or so of the companies, just have like a single software title, like this obscure company called Microsoft? Microsoft, I guess? In Bellevue, Washington? Have a game called Microsoft Decathlon. Yeah, I'm not sure they make it very long after this. I'm not sure that we hear much more from them. Muse Software has a bunch of good stuff. ABM, Castle Wolfenstein, one of the most memorable games on the Apple II ever. And two more by Silas Warner, Robot War and Firebug. And a couple I haven't played, Frazzle and International Grand Prix. It also has the Cube Solution, which is a Master the Rubik's Cube kind of program, it says. From Penguin Software in Geneva, Illinois, we have Pie Man, Transylvania, and Spy's Demise. From Quality Software, we have Alibaba and the 40 Thieves, Beneath Apple Manor by Don Worth, definitely a famous game, and a few others. Then we get to one of the big famous companies, Sierra Online, having just recently changed from online systems, and it just reads like a list of the all-time greats. We got Cannonball Blitz by Olaf Lubeck, Crossfire by Jay Sullivan, Frogger by Olaf Lubeck, Jawbreaker by John Harris, Lunar Leaper by Chuck Boucher, who I interviewed way back when in episode 10 when I still was doing interviews. And we have Threshold by Warren Schwader, Pest Patrol by Mark Allen, Mask Attack by John Harris, Ultima 2 by Lord British, Sabotage by Mark Allen, Pegasus 2 by Olaf Lubeck, which as I've mentioned many times, I think is one of the first games I played. Sabotage and Pegasus 2 were like two of the very first games I ever played on the Apple II. Laugh Pack by Chuck Boucher, Marauder by Rourke Wygant, and then All the High-Res Adventures by Kenner Roberta Williams. 
They wrote Adventures 0, 1, and 2. Roberta herself wrote number 5, Time Zone. And then Hyra's Adventure number 3, Cranston Manor, was by Harold DeWitts. And number 4, Ulysses and the Golden Fleece, was by Bob Davis. And the CR Online section is finished by Softborn Adventure by Charles Benton, which at its heart is a gambling game, although, as I mentioned in a previous episode, the goal was to seduce three women, which is problematic in any number of ways. Again, there's just so many assumptions about gender here. It says, if you play your cards right, you might even get rich, an adventure for adults only. The underlying assumption is that you, reading this, are someone who finds women attractive. And again, the underlying sexism is a recurring theme of the podcast here. How hard could it have been with a two-word parser to be able to specify the gender that you were interested in? You know, this podcast is all about nostalgia and the fond memories we all have about the Apple II. But it is important to remind ourselves that not everything was as rosy back then as we would like to think. The similarly named Sierra software from Las Vegas, Nevada is next. And it seems like the one-person publishing house of someone named Alec Zabchenko, because all four games are by them. Space Adventure Episode 1, Space Adventure Episode 2, Retro Ball, and Alien Lander. The latter two are noted to work with the Apple III in emulation mode. Sirius Software is next out of Sacramento, California. And it's notable here as to how completely they've scrubbed Nasser Gabelli from this list, because there's nothing by him. The standout is probably Way Out by Paul Edelstein, and there's Free Fall by Mark Turmel and some others, but it seems like they're really throwing shade on Nasser Gabelli by not including any of his stuff. I don't know if you remember back to the July 1982 issue of Soft Talk, which we covered, I don't know how many episodes ago, where in the exec column they talked about Sirius, and how Nasser was the breakout star of the early portion of the company. But there's that quote from Jerry Jewell who said that, He's sorry that Nasser left from the dollar perspective, that he's an excellent programming talent, he just wasn't a team player. But I'm sure Sirius would still take the money if he wanted to buy some of the old titles by Nasser. There's Surtech from Ogdensburg, New York, and of course Wizardry overshadowed everything else that they produced. There's a software farm from Aurora, Colorado that has Monster Mash that we did a live play of earlier. Strategic Simulations from Mountain View, California has a bunch of stuff, you know, strategy type games as in their name. One of the notable ones, Cytron Masters by Danny Button. Talked about her quite a bit in the past on the podcast. Sublogic, based in Champaign, Illinois. Of course, has Flight Simulator by Bruce Artwick. And Night Mission Pinball by him as well. Another company from Louisiana, Superior Software from Kenner, Louisiana, which is outside of New Orleans, with the games Asteroid Belt, The Quest for the Holy Grail, and Doom Valley. Then we get Synergistic Software, which among others has the fame skin Crisis Mountain. And right here near the end, we come to the modestly named United Software of America, out of New York, New York. That includes the game Space Raiders by one of the regular contributors to Soft Talk, Paul Lutus. I'm going to speed through the rest of the stuff here. That's the end of the games category. As we're flipping through, we'll highlight a few interesting things, which means we're entirely skipping over the business section. In the communications section, they list a bunch of modems from Hayes and Novation and a bunch of telecommunications programs. In the education section, they list Logo from Apple. And some familiar names in Eduware and Spinnaker Software were some of their stuff like FaceMaker and Story Machine. But curiously, there's no entry for the Minnesota Educational Computing Consortium with all their famous stuff. Of course, the most famous being Oregon Trail. But maybe that's because for the Apple II, at least, MECC licensed stuff to school districts rather than selling directly. For other computers like the Atari, MECC sold stuff through their Atari Program Exchange, which was this cool sort of precursor to the App Store that Atari sponsored for a while before Atari made another one of their boneheaded management decisions to kill that program. Boo Atari management. Fortunately, no Apple CEO ever made any dumb decisions. (laughs) John Scully. (laughs) 
the graphics section, and now we're getting into some of the smaller sections. These next couple only have, you know, three or four pages at most. But the graphics section has stuff from Beagle Brothers and some of Paul Ludis's stuff from United Software of America, Apple World, and 3D Super Graphics, but really is dominated by the Penguin entry, which has all the great stuff by Mark Pelzarski, like the Complete Graphic System 2, the Graphics Magician, and Special Effects. Also credited as a co-author is David Lubar, who we've run across in his graph paper column from Creative Computing. The only category I'll really spend much more time on is the Utilities section, and of course this has stuff like copy programs, like Copy 2 Plus 4.0 from Central Point Software from Portland, Oregon. The Beagle Brothers have Apple Mechanic by Bert Kersey, and a bunch of DOS 3.3 utilities. In here also are some languages. There's a couple versions from Forth. That little company called Microsoft has the Apple Compiler, converting basic programs to native 6502. SC Software has all their assembler utilities, you know, the Macro Assembler, the Assembler 2, the Cross Assemblers for a bunch of stuff, 6800, 6809, Z80, 68000. Their own basic compiler, this one for integer basic, called Flash. Then there's a short word processing section of about a page worth of stuff, and a shorter Apple III section of about a little more than half a page. And then we get into non-software stuff. There's some books, including Beneath Apple DOS, which I've mentioned before I have a copy thanks to Kansas Fest Garage Giveaway. There's Assembly Lines The Book by Roger Wagner from Soft Talk Books. And the confusingly named but not related Apple Assembly Line monthly newsletter for assembly language programmers but from SC Software. And then we have Accessories and Hardware. You'll recognize some of the companies from the hardware section. The Alien Group, Amdeck, with a bunch of monitors. Axlon, with their 320K RAM disk system. Corvus Systems, with their Winchester disk drives. Hap Electronics, with their Game Socket Extender. Kensington, with their famous System Saver. And Craft Systems, with, of course, their famous joystick. There's Orange Micro, with their Grappler Plus printer interface. Practical Peripherals, with their Microbuffer 2. Street Electronics with their Echo 2 speech synthesizer, and then TG Products, of which we heard about in the exact column of this very issue, their joystick, trackball, paddles, and select a port. And that's pretty much it. There's like three pages of contact info for all these companies, doing addresses and phone numbers. And in the middle of this, you know, this huge 80-page section, there's all these ads, of course. Shortly after the mentioning the system saver in the list, there's this big full-page ad for system saver. There's a big two-page ad for the Beagle Brothers stuff. Yeah, so there's probably a very premium price to pay for ads in the middle of this section. In the Market Talk Reviews section, we have a Ramdisk 320 review. This is the Axon Ramdisk. It's super pricey, $1,395. It says for a price slightly more than that of two disk drives, you can have two disks full of frequently used programs at your fingertips. Fast. But that is super pricey. I'll include a link in the show notes to Paul Hagstrom's article on the Ramdisk 320. It requires its own interface card. And it requires a modified version of DOS in order to access the stuff on the RAM disk. One of the benefits of the RAM disk is it has its own power supply, so you can keep the RAM disk on and turn the Apple off, and it'll still re- retain its memory. A downside is because it requires this modified DOS, you can't use any software that has to boot from its own disk to run. They seem pretty impressed with the speed, though, noting that loading high-res screens from disks, which occupy 34 sectors, takes less than 3 seconds, where it normally takes much longer than that. But is it worth the price? Ah, it's pretty expensive. They review a couple other things. Uh, the only one I'll really mention, though, is the review of Frogger by Olaf Lubeck. And it says, this may be the official version of the popular arcade game Frogger, but it has about mu- as much soul as month-old lettuce in the Sahara. So not pulling many punches with this one, saying that Online's previous mode was to have these what they call tongue-in-cheek versions of popular arcade games. 
including in the name Jawbreaker, Pegasus 2, and Cannonball Blitz. Games marked by state-of-the-art graphics and a good deal of irreverence and style. And says Frogger sounds like the death knell for that touch. Graphics border on being abysmal. Wit has been traded for irony. And online has put out a game that is graphically no better than the subject of its ridicule. It says, in this version, the frog resembles a chess pond with vestigial wings. The logs in the river look like they just escaped from the Oscar Mayer factory. And when your frog hops on a log, it appears to have stuck its web foot into an electric socket. It positively vibrates. It says, despite that, the game's fun to play, but for Apple owners, it constitutes a slap in the face, because Sierra Online's Atari version of the same game is great. There, the graphics sparkle, the sound is wonderful, and the game is certainly in the forefront of that particular market. And lamenting the Apple version as... Either Frogger is a mistake or it's a betrayal. We prefer to believe the former. You'll have to make up your own minds. The review section is a little shorter than normal. It's only about five pages, but they do spend about a whole column on this joke review of InvisiCalc. It says when you boot it, you're greedy with a blank screen because it automatically bombs the monitor and resets LoM to take over all areas of graphics and text storage, freeing up a full 72 pages, 18K, of memory. And that's not all. They developed their kick-ass operating system, Chaos for short, when they, couldn't dis- when they discovered they couldn't get DOS downloaded to the CPU in his microwave oven. They wrote the versatile accounting package in a language called Slander, which is a spreadsheet language algorithm for non-displayable electronic readout. By the elimination of all output routines, additional memory is made available on zero page and the upper regions of ROM, which is somehow overwritten by Chaos. It says perhaps its most innovative feature is unlimited memory, saying as the user moves the cursor into previously unused areas, it initializes new sections of memory, and then when it runs out of RAM, it moves previous sections of the spreadsheet to disk. When it runs out of disk space, it overwrites earlier material on the assumption that if the user really needed it, he wouldn't have moved the cursor so far away. Caution is advised. And it continues on this vein for a while, and then summarizes InvisiCalc by Slipshod Software, and it gives a fake address and price withheld by request. The DOS Talk column is next by Bert Kersey. Open saying, undoubtedly the most requested DOS Talk article or series of articles would be on the topic of copy protecting software. Well, sorry gang, nothing doing. The main reason is you could fit everything I know about copy protection on a write protect tab. The next reason is anything learned about disk protection today is subject to becoming obsolete next Tuesday. This is truly fascinating subject for some, others just can't get into it. And of course, the modern take on old copy protection is the program Passport. I'll include a link to that in the show notes. It's able to crack all sorts of modified RWTS routines, like, automatically. Back in the early days when 4AM was doing this, he'd have a big write-up about how he did all this manually, and then he created this automated program with Cucumba called Passport. And I'll include a link in the show notes to some Kansas Fest talks about this, too, because it's pretty amazing stuff. Back in the article, he continues with his series of catalog utilities. And so here he kind of throws some shade on CPM file names, you know, the 8 plus 3 character limit, which DOS and other systems used for a long time, including Atari. Boo, Atari. And of course, we have 30-character file names, but because the Apple 40-column screen prevents listing more than one line per file, a catalog often occupies several screens full of file names, he says. So to fit more file names on a screen, we need to come up with a way to abbreviate file names that are too long. He presents the 20-line basic program first and explains it afterwards, talking about how back in the October issue, he talked about how to use... uh, RWTS from BASIC, so he goes over that stuff. He figures out the number of active files on the disk, then the number of characters of the maximum length of the file, and finally prints it out. And in order to save space, he doesn't print out the actual sizes of each file, only the space left on the disk. And he has additional 15-line BASIC program 
that will lock or unlock all the files on the disk. But he says, watch out, this program writes to the disk, so test it out on a friend's disk before you risk your own. I'm going to skip the education column, the logo column, like I normally do, because not real interested in that stuff back then or now. There's a long article, Once Upon an Apple, Twice Upon a Time, about the first animated movie that was produced by George Lucas. It's not traditional animation, or, you know, it's not CGI either. It's apparently looking up the Wikipedia article, because I had never heard about this film before. It says, a form of cutout animation, which it says involves prefabricated cutout plastic pieces moving across a light table. And so the point of this article is all the motion control was done with Apple II Pluses. There was a custom I.O. board that interfaced between the Apple and the camera controller, the article says. And it shows a picture of this sort of modded Apple II with different colored keys on the keyboard that represent different movements of the controller. So apparently you can manually move the camera position using the keys on the keyboard, and then it can record it and play it back later in order to, like, you know, duplicate the tracking motion of, of the camera. The article says initially they had problems fitting all the software in memory, so they needed a 32K expansion board and saying the final program includes 7K of assembly language and around 30K of AppleSoft. Apparently, the film did not get a wide release. I'd never heard of it before, and it seems like there was different versions filmed. And I don't know if this was a non-union production or what, but apparently they couldn't hire writers, so it was all improvised. Also, apparently there were, like, safe for kids and versions with language in it that were variously released. But kind of dooming it to a limited release was that it was produced by the Lad Company, which is a studio that was nearing bankruptcy, according to Wikipedia, and had the choice of putting this movie into limited or worldwide release at the same time dealing with the right stuff. The right stuff had a bigger budget, and that failed at the box office, but of course it's a brilliant film. But that was one of the downfalls of the Lad Company as a sort of production company and ongoing concern. So definitely see the right stuff if you've not seen that, and I cannot vouch for this film. So caveat emptor. The Beginner's Corner by Christopher U. Light talks about the Apple Software Bank, which was a set of five discs that were made available to Apple owners through their dealers. And, you know, since I never had one myself, I only used the Apple IIs at school, I never saw most of these programs he talks about. He talks about how most of the programs are now written in integer basic and therefore aren't super useful today. I mean, you still can load an integer basic with a language card, but they're all on DOS 3.2 discs, you know, 13 sector discs, which speaks to their age. And then, but he spends the last so it's like, what, two pages in the article and spends most of the last part going over a program with the name File Cabinet on disk three. And it's written entirely in AppleSoft, so it's, he says you can list it for study and modification, and then he goes over sort of a tutorial about how to maintain a phone list. And following that up with another little tutorial how to use it as a business planning tool. So he shows a couple like modifications to do various things, because you know we have the AppleSoft, might as well use it. And he says in a later issue, we'll look at ways to modify File Cabinet to link cells mathematically somewhat in the way that Visicalc does. So yeah, we'll check that out in the next issue. In the All About AppleSoft column by Doug Carlston, he says, Up until now, we've skipped over one of the most powerful features of the AppleSoft language, its ability to compute. And so it says they'll tackle a bunch of math functions this time. So he goes over the new commands for this month are cosine, sine, tangent, inverse tangent, square root, and then two sort of non-intrinsic you know, intrinsic functions. There's space, SPC, which puts a number of spaces in the output, and defn, where you define a, a single line function. So it's two pages with lots of examples. In the news section, Newspeak, they have an entry on how the Atari systems have been chosen for the exclusive use of the Department of Defense dependent schools. 
says approximately 1,400 Atari 800s are going to go to the 272 schools located in 24 countries with a total enrollment of about 140,000 students. So what is that, five or six Ataris per school? They talked to someone named Dennis L. Bybee, who's the educational computing coordinator with the DODDS, because the military has to have their acronyms, who said the Atari came out on top technically over all the others in a competitive bid, but he was not able to reveal the names of the other microcomputers involved. Says so the Ataris will be used in computer literacy, computer science, and administrative support for the schools. And each set will include an Atari 800 with 48K, a disk drive, an interface module, which is something called the 850 because the Atari doesn't have built-in serial ports. So you have to use their SIO system, the serial interface, which is not standard, to connect to this other peripheral, which then you can talk to standard serial port stuff. It said the Atari had several key features, sound, color graphics, and durability. Basic in Pascal for our secondary schools and pilot for our elementary schools. Since to pass our college entrance placement test, students must test on a computer language, and we prefer Pascal with its structured program logic. Well, the joke's on them, because Pascal takes two disk drives on the Atari, so they should have chosen an Apple. Boo, Atari. The Hard Talk column by Jeffrey Mazur is all about temperature, and, like, there's fans for the Apple, how to cool it, there's temperature measurement systems, both that measure external temperature and some you can mount inside your Apple to sort of measure the temperature of the, the computer itself, and various stands and monitor mounting solutions that purport to keep the Apple cool. And as we near the end of the magazine there, you know, there's a bunch of stuff I don't normally cover. The soft card symposium, you know, the Z80 CPM stuff that is totally opaque to me. The Apple III Business Basic column, the Pascal Path, and a few more things till we get down to the bestsellers. For the Strategy 5, Castle Wolfenstein remains on top. Number two is SEUIS, which I don't know. That's by Strategic Simulations. Number three is Bruce Artwick's Flight Simulator which is the same place it was last month. And rounding up the top five are two new ones, Cosmic Balance and Robot War. For the Adventure 5, new this month at number one is Starcross by Infocom. Then Zork 1, unchanged at number two, Deadline at number three, and Zork 2 at number four. Both of those were tied for fifth last month. And number five is Escape from Runjistan that previously was number one. In the Fantasy 5, Wizardry and Knight of Diamonds maintain their lock on first and second, as they have for these last four months. Snooper Troops 1 by Tom Snyder breaks into number 3. Ultima drops to number 4 from number 3 last month. And Prisoner 2 debuts at number 5. In their top 30 overall, where they, you know, they combine all the subcategories, then stuff you know, we don't normally cover, like you know, business and whatever. Physical is number 1, as it was last month. Choplifter's number 2, which is the first game. You have to go down to number 7 to find Wizardry in the Arcade Machine. And then we go down to number 10 for Starcross. Then 14 is Cannonball Blitz, 16 is Knight of Diamonds, tied with Frogger, tied for 18th is Starblazer, 20th is Zork 1, Deadline is 25th, Zork 2 is 27th, and sneaking in in a three-way tie for 29th is Snack Attack. That's the end of the magazine. The inside back cover is an ad for Repton from Sirius, and the back cover is an ad for The Dark Crystal. It says the movie is now an exciting high-res adventure for your personal computer. This is The Dark Crystal, a high-res adventure designed by Roberta Williams and based on the epic fantasy film by Jim Henson, is available at your local computer store for $39.95 or order directly from Sierra Online. Next, let's look at Nibble. This is volume 3, number 8, for December 1982, $2.95 on the cover price. And if you guessed 204 pages in this issue, you got it correct. That's the third issue for this year that's 204 pages. And down from last month's very large 244-page issue as you probably remember from last month's episode. 
Nibble, the reference for Apple computing. Of course, yeah, I say this is the December issue. It's still only eight times a year. We have another whole year to go of, of eight issues before they move into monthly publication. But December is one of the months they release the magazine on. In a twist, the cover art is by Robert Tinney, who we mostly know from Byte magazine. Most of the previous artwork has been done by Len Boylan, and he's still credited as the illustrator designer in the masthead. The image is done in Robert Tinney's photorealistic style. There's a table, and on the table looks like it's covered by a tablecloth, and there's a place sitting on the bottom of the page with a, instead of a plate, it's got a blue floppy disk, and you know it's got forks and knives and spoons and stuff laid out, and it's like, sort of like a, a fancy meal is about to be served. Dominating the image, though, is this large mirrored silver fruit bowl with grapes, apples, and oranges in it. And in the reflection of the fruit bowl, you can see an apple too. But if I'm going to pick some nits, the apple too is not reversed. You can see the apple logo on the left side, and you can read apple too. And then, you know, the power light is on the correct side. So unless they're, maybe he's reflecting it into a second mirror that we can't see that's off the page. But there's your art criticism for the day. And I wonder if they chose this theme because on the text of the cover, the first item is apple recipe box. As everyone was wont to do, let's see if we can get the computers in the kitchens that nobody actually wanted or did at the time. Also call, called out on the front cover here is Disc Doctor Quasar 2, which turns out to be a machine language game, and then tips and techniques, utilities, and much, much more. In the table of contents, it shows the Apple recipe box. It says cookbooking made simple, instant retrieval editing, and display printing of your favorite recipes. Automatic portioning for half, twice, and four times servings, because everyone wanted their Apple II stuck in the kitchen. There's a bit of a cooking theme. There's another one called Fat Graph, which is a little on the nose. It says, uh, high-res tracking of your dieting objectives and actual weight loss. Watch the pounds roll off. Not pulling any punches with that blurb. Other stuff of interest, they have the Disc Doctor. Then the Games and Fun is the Quasar 2. It says, fast, flicker-free animation in clearing your galaxy of asteroids and meteors. One of the best high-res animation games we've published. So we'll do a little live play of that. And other stuff we might look at, uh, there's a tips and techniques section, uh, the simple and elegant method for solving simultaneous equations with one line of code. See what that's all about. There's some DOS utilities to look at. There's a modified B-load and B-save. And the legal bits section, which we don't normally cover, but this one says the arcade attack, all about the attack on arcade game playing and protection from galactic invaders. So we'll see what that's all about. In the editorial, Mike Harvey says, Nibble completes its third year of publication, and once again, it's time for a great big thank you. You've kept us growing and growing, and with this issue, we've passed the 50,000 paid circulation mark. He says, we've come a long way from our family room licking envelopes and sorting our mailing labels by hand, and you made it happen. He says, we continue to renew our commitment to provide quality, value, and service to you, our readers and advertisers. You can count on it. And then he shares a little anecdote about having the opportunity to consult with a company that was trying to enter the software business, saying that as they talked, it was clear they didn't have a business plan. They had this software program written, but didn't know how to market it, and so... He said there's many alternatives. You can do a one-shot deal, enter with some company that'll document and promote the stuff for you in exchange for a royalty. You can go it alone, do all the stuff yourself, or you could, what he calls, sell private label, so license the rights to a manufacturer and have them market it under its own brand name. And he kind of expands the focus a little bit and says if, you know, essentially if you were trying to do this, it depends on the style of program because the game programs have less of a shelf life where utilities are longer, and then application programs require a different strategy, or what he calls the Kodak strategy, is pricing the core product low to achieve market penetration, then developing and pricing follow-on products at a premium to add value to the core product. But he said, above all that, you need a 
a plan, a roadmap, he says, which is less than an accurate forecast of the future than what he calls a roadmap. You know, if you're going to drive across the country, you can plan a direct route, but then what happens if a bridge is out? You've got to take these detours. And so you know the general direction you want to go, but you don't have all the specifics of how you're going to get there. It says a living vital plan has three fundamental characteristics, a goal, alternatives for reaching it, and continual assessment and revision as the journey progresses. And then he has his usual summary of the stuff in the issue, the recipe box, the disc doctor, and then Quasar 2 saying this is one of the best arcade graphics games we've ever published, animation asteroids, ships, shells, and the whole shoot match. And then he says if the recipe box tempts you to overindulge, Chris Exner's program Fat Graph will bring things back into perspective. Yeah, great name. Then it says new contributing editor Annie Moss probes all sorts of interesting techniques with playing with pointers. But this is interesting because it's not listed in the table of contents, and I can't find it at all in the magazine. So I don't know if this was something that is going to be in the next magazine. So we'll take a look at it next time in volume four, number one, which of course will be the February issue based on their publishing schedule at this point. First thing we're going to cover is the Apple Recipe Box by J.L. Kostenbotter of Bountiful, Utah. When I purchased my Apple II Plus late last year, it says, it was only with the approval of my wife. Part of the hard sell I laid on her was that she would find the computer helpful to her around the house. And yeah, we definitely got some gender roles going here. Apparently he doesn't cook because he says stuff like, additionally, my wife found it confusing when she needed to double or triple a recipe, or even worse yet, cut one in half! Exclamation, exclamation, exclamation. Well, our Apple solved all that. Now our recipes are stored neatly on a floppy disk. So if you can somehow get past the complementarianism and still want to type in this program, it's about 500 lines of Applesoft Basic, menu-driven, has about a page describing how to use it, and then almost two full pages of discussing how the uh, program works and the file structure used on disk. And in conclusion, he says, this is an enjoyable program to write as it endeared my wife a little bit more to our Apple. He said it helped her understand the capabilities of the machine more and helped me develop a few more programming skills, he says. Next on the list is refinement of a shopping list program tailored to her favorite grocery store. So I guess he doesn't do any shopping. And I've mentioned this many times before, but these, you know, these recipe programs are something that were like touted as this big thing for computers in the 80s, when in reality that function was probably like the least likely thing to ever be used on a personal computer, or at least a desktop one. Next we move on to the graphics workshop. This month is a program called Southern Draw by Don O'Shea of Atlanta, Georgia. Presumably living in Atlanta is why it's called Southern Draw. It's a drawing pro program sort of lamenting that most of the drawing programs currently are either using the IJKM keyboard controls or paddles like an Etch-a-Sketch. Instead, this one uses a, a single paddle, but it is in kind of a like a turtle graphics mode. It's like you start at a point and the paddle selects a direction. You choose a length of line and then you draw that length of line in that direction. It's about 100 lines of Applesoft Basic and there's a little machine language routine that moves uh, one high-risk page to the other. There's no screenshot. You know, Nibble's usually good about putting screenshots, but for some reason they didn't on this one, and it would kind of help because he describes, goes through a few paragraphs trying to describe the mechanic of how this works, and I think it would have been helpful to have a couple screenshots in there, you know, as like intermediate steps as he was explaining this. You can draw it with various different pencil widths, and you can draw in any of the high-res colors. There's keyboard commands for that, and then you can load and save images. Next, we come to our super-inclusive and not-at-all-body-shaming program, Fat Graph, by Chris Exner of Reading, Mass. The introduction says, Have the fat blues got you down? Well, my chubby chum, it's time to gather your plump pals around you and shed those unwanted pounds. Yikes. Basically, it's a weight-tracking program, but it certainly could have uh, used an editor or 
Yeah, something. I don't know if they were trying to be funny, but clearly it's not at all. There are plenty of valid ways to use this program, but the idea that the introduction would start that way, and there's this character of a larger-than-average person with fat graphs spelled out in kind of balloon letters is way over the top and inappropriate. If, and I sound like I'm almost repeating myself from the earlier article on the recipe thing, you can somehow get past all the fat shaming and bad language and you still want to use this program, it's about 120 lines of Applesoft and its point is to keep track and save weights over time and then plot on a high-res graph the progress and it can keep track of multiple people at the same time using different colors on the same display. So yeah, the program could have some use, I just wish they would have written the text differently. In the Nibbling at Applesoft column by Leslie Schmeltz of Bettendorf, Iowa, it's all about tape and disc bugs. One of the subheadings, does anyone actually use tape anymore? And I certainly never used a tape on the Apple IIs. The article says, tape is experiencing something of a revival as a popular method of backing up entire discs of data. But I don't know how reliable they were as backups, and even the article says it's a good idea to save or store several copies of important programs or data files, saying if one copy won't read successfully, chances are one of the others will. Not a super reliable backup. And also it admonishes, once you've found the proper tone and volume settings for your particular tape transport, don't touch them. And the rest of the three-page article goes over all the disk errors from DOS, listing what they are and the common causes of each, you know, like... For example, when it says no buffers available, you can change the max files setting because it's saying that you can't open any more files. So you've either forgotten to close some files, or yeah, you just need to increase max files. In the on the scenes section, you know, kind of the new products stuff, they talk about things like a three-dimensional graphics tablet, and they show an image of like the swing arm thing that obviously has three, you know, three potentiometers to get the X, Y, and Z. So you have this pencil that's on the end of this long stick, and they can read the angles, and then from that determine the spatial position of the point that you want. And they show it digitizing a model of a space shuttle on the Apple. It says the software works with the included space graphics software or Penguin Software's complete graphics system 2. It says contact microcontrol systems, but no price is listed, so I'm guessing it's not cheap. Another one here says undefeatable copy protection. It says this software produces disk copies which have billions of different parameter combinations, Something called Piracy Proof, P-R-U-F, provides advanced menu-controlled RAM protection features along with the ability to initialize compatible data disks for data expansion. $175 from Kane Computing. We'll see what 4AM has to say about undefeatable copy protection. I don't see an obvious tie-in to any of the patchers listed in the source for Passport, so it may be that this is just a yeah, version that's subsumed by something else, or it's just you know not widespread enough that he's encountered it yet. Next, we come to the Apple Disk Doctor by Ben Colley of Hallsville, Missouri. This is like a sort of low-level DOS disk utility. You can work with DOS 3.3 as listed, or you can make a few modifications and have it work with 13-sector DOS 3.2 disks. Requires 48K with AppleSoft and ROM, and obviously, at least one disk 2 drive. It allows you to dump sectors and then edit them. You can recover deleted files. You can remove DOS for more space, or you can change the slot and drive. It's 300 lines of AppleSoft Basic and four little machine language routines used to mostly to interface with RWTS. The machine language routines are actually just listed as data statements, and it's poked in and stuff, so you don't have to type in additional machine language items and then b-save them like you do sometimes in the magazine. Next we come to the games and fun section. This is Quasar 2, a machine language arcade game by Brent Iverson of Boca Raton, Florida. It has a silly story about your 
spaceship on a mission to clear the Andromeda Nebula of space debris, and it goes out of its way not to use the word asteroid, because that's basically what it is. It's kind of like a combination of asteroids and space zap. And I'll demo for you here in a second. If you were to type this in, it'd be quite a while, because there's about 50 lines of basic that is kind of the driver program, but then you've got to type in about 70 bytes for the shape table, and then a lot of lines of machine language, about eight full columns, and there's two columns per page, and it's a lot of text per line. I mean, it's a very small font. It's getting on the order of 60 or 80 lines per column. So it's a lot of machine language. Or you can do what I did and find nibble disk number 11 from the Internet Archive. And then if you do that, you can just type load Quasar 2 and then run it. And it says, would you like instructions? We'll hit yes. And it goes over the key controls. So you have two like control blocks. Left hand moves and right hand fires. So A and D move left and right, W and X move up and down. And then to fire, it's I for up, J and L left and right, and the comma is down. So here we go. You start off in the center. You have the ship that can move with slow thrust and fast thrust in each of the four directions. Then you can combine them and go diagonally. You fire at these little rocks or space debris, as it says. Oh, and that's me getting destroyed. So you can fire out of the cardinal directions. That's me hitting something finally. Oh, and that's me getting destroyed again. So it's pretty sparse here in this first level. You only have like four things to destroy. Or get destroyed yourself, like I do. So yeah, not a bad little game. Quite a step up from the basic games we've been getting in these last couple of issues. You know, the football simulation last month was just not my cup of tea. So the last one I probably really liked was the one Othello back in the August issue. So yeah, this is probably my favorite game for quite a while in, um, in Nibble here. The assembly language is well commented, and it even has an overview about how the machine works, you know, kind of from a high-level view, and then they break down uh, some of the individual routines and variables that are used. So this is definitely one to pour over if you're thinking about writing a game in high-res. And super appropriate given the name of this podcast, it uses shape tables for all the graphics. In the tips and techniques section, we have Compact Kraut by Sydney A. Powers of Duncanville, Texas. It's a uh, small little what, 20 lines of basic, designed to solve a matrix of uh, simultaneous equations. It says they've used it to solve as many as 50 equations, but in order to do that, you'd have to have a matrix with a strong diagonal, it says, because it's uh, not a super sophisticated algorithm for solving simultaneous equations. For those of you who remember linear algebra, or for those of you like me who for- have forgotten all this stuff, this algorithm is a LU decomposition, so it decomposes the matrix into a lower triangular matrix and an upper triangular unit matrix. So have fun with that. You know, it's a toss-up between this and Quasar 2, which is more fun. Other things in the tips and techniques section here, we have a utility to help you print out basic listings without the control characters, which is helpful. There's a modified B-load and B-save, so you can save something onto disk using a different destination address than what's in memory, because normally the B-save includes the address that you're the starting address, and so this changes that so that when you B-load it, it goes to wherever you want it to be, not wherever it was saved to. There's also a little utility to modify the VTOC on a DOS 3.3 disk to free up 11 sectors for memory, because DOS uses track 0, sector 0 through track 2, sector 4, but all of track 2 is marked as used, even though it doesn't use 11 sectors, so this little utility marks those sectors as free. There's a little utility called Magic Insert by Jenny Schmidt of Madison, Wisconsin about how to use a little machine language routine that allows you to change the editor so you can 
insert stuff in the middle of a basic line. So with this function, you list the line that you want to change, type ampersand return, and then use the escape functions and the right arrow to move the cursor where you want to insert stuff. Type control Z, type all the stuff you want, press control Z again, and you have inserted text. It's about a 60 or 70 lines of machine language. And this, yeah, it's kind of like uh, editing functions that like the Atari can give you Boo Atari. Let's see how many times I can say Boo Atari in one episode. So yeah, definitely a useful little utility. And the final entry here in the tips and techniques is a list of the DOS command entry points. So it's got all the DOS functions. And, you know, it's an alphabetical list that shows here, like append, b load, b run, b save. And it has the addresses of each. And essentially what is, what this, the point of it is, I think, is to, you know, modify the code at this, at these entry points to change the commands. Like if you wanted to, say, wipe out the init command, so, you know, you have a computer lab and they can't, like, format over disks or something, you could change the code at A54F to do something innocuous like return. The products inside and out section is called the Phantom Disk. It's about the Saturn 128K RAM board. Apparently, it can be used both as a RAM disk and as extra memory that can essentially re- replace the language card in slot zero. As a RAM disk, the author James Florini of Syracuse, New York, says that it reduced some compiler times by moving the compiler and linker and stuff into that RAM board, reduced it from compiling a really long program that results in 55 blocks on disk from almost 16 minutes to just under 7 minutes. So it saves a lot of time there. There's also copy programs that can move a whole disk to the RAM and then save out the whole disk again, so you can copy stuff efficiently with one disk drive. And for basic, it can move DOS on the RAM card, and then you get a big increase in your free space for your basic program from 34.923 to 46.589 bytes available. Not cheap, though, $600, but definitely has some advantages. In the Inside Applications section, we have a modification for the MLE driver. If you remember, we talked about the machine language editor back in be the March issue that was uh, Nibbles Volume 3 Number 2. I had that other, and this is a modification to allow saving of the binary files uh, much faster. It's about 40 lines of basic. And then next we have the Apple Financier Tax Depreciation Routines. That's a big old basic program that we're going to totally skip over. There's the Pascal Pointers and Principles article by James Florini, the same guy who did the MLE modification. Got some Pascal code that I vaguely remember. I remember doing Pascal on the Apple II. I remember the final project was this all this word count stuff. Like, it was just like one page of text and you had to do all sorts of statistics, you know, count the words, count the letters, count the sentences, count the paragraphs, all that stuff. And I remember it's like I had to stay late on the last day of school to get it done. I remember it was the last day of school. I remember everybody was gone and I walked out to the parking lot. This is, I was, I just learned to drive. So this is what I was 15 or 16. And in the, whatever the celebration of the last day of school, people had picked up my car and like put it sideways. It was a, it was rotated in the parking lot. I will always associate Apple Pascal with my car being, at least it wasn't destroyed, I have to say, or wasn't flipped over. They just, like, picked it up and moved it around. In the Fun with the Toolkit column by Rob Smythe of Burlington, Ontario, continuing the topic of the Animatrix program in the DOS 3.3 toolkit, it basically shows how to use the Animatrix to design some shapes, and then it has a little uh, small basic game, probably about 200 lines worth of basic, that is kind of like a little matchem game for kids. In the Apple Utilities section, there's the program SaveDell by Philippe Francois of Marseille, France. It's a machine language utility that allows one to, number one, delete an array or list of arrays from the array pool in memory, and number two, save a list of arrays when AppleSoft programs are chained. And there's some 
small demos in basic, and then the saved L program itself is machine language. In the middle of this machine language listing, there's a third page um, column ad for piracy proof from Kane Computing that we talked about saying the uh, new concept in copy protection renders disks uncopyable even by the most sophisticated copy programs now available. Yeah, again, it says e- every disk is protected differently with billions of possible combinations of coding and formatting changes. It says price is $175, and yeah, I am going to have to see if 4AM knows about this. The next utility is called a Faster Than Faster DOS 3.3 by Alan and Valerie Fletter of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. They note back in the March issue, so this would be nibble number two of this year, if you remember the article by Craig Peterson entitled Faster DOS 3.3, showing how you could reformat the disk with a different sector order so that when you go to read, it's faster because you're not waiting for the disk to make a complete revolution to find the next sector. It's just the disk is right where it expects to be for the next sector that it it can load. And it was great for reading, but now in tests, saving existing files is almost 50% slower. They describe the problem as DOS always reading in data whether or not it needs to, saying, you know, a disk sector of 256 bytes DOS will read a sector even if it knows it's going to have to write 256 new bytes. So they offer this little 10-line basic program to patch DOS to get around that, as well as another 10-line program to patch DOS for the nine-sector SKU that speeds up uh, most other, you know, all the read accesses. The final article we'll look at is the Legal Bits column by Thorne D. Harris III, attorney at law at Kenner, Louisiana. The title is The Arcade Attack. It says, since many computer enthusiasts also enjoy a good arcade video game, I thought I'd let you know about a few rather strange happenings I've heard of and ask that you let me know if things are getting crazy in your town as well. But he says, all this information is secondhand, so please write if you have better or more complete facts. This article is about the battle to limit arcade access to people under 18. He talks about a few specific things, like in Boston, people under 18 can't play video games during school hours. And in Kenner, Louisiana, his hometown apparently, video games are off-limits to minors after certain hours. He says there's other laws in other areas of the country that are springing up to prohibit or limit arcade games, saying certainly we can dispute the wisdom of these laws, but perhaps the more important question is, are these laws constitutional and enforceable? So he talks about the Tenth Amendment, says, as many of you remember from your eighth grade civics class, and I didn't recall exactly what the Tenth Amendment was, but it's the one that says... Any powers not delegated to the federal government were reserved to the states, saying the states have very broad general powers to protect their citizens, what he calls here as the state's police power, but says this does not refer to local constable, but rather to the general protection and welfare of the people. And as an example, he says regulations regarding water quality, health, zoning, etc. also come within this power, and that since video games are not mentioned in the Constitution and have not been made the subject of exclusive federal jurisdiction under the Interstate Commerce Clause, it would appear that some form of state regulation might be appropriate. But do video games and their enjoyment present the same danger to the public as contaminated water? And he says to determine this kind of stuff, they need you know studies and doctor's reports and even court cases. He says Americans love to sue, but he says perhaps playing computer games is hazardous to your health. He comes up with three anecdotes here. One, that a 12-year-old played Defender for 19 hours on one quarter and said that he stayed home from school the next day. A second, there was a thunderstorm in New Jersey that collapsed the roof of an arcade, and the players continued to play without so much as a flinch of the joystick. Do we therefore have the argument that video games are akin to drugs, making the user so unaware of the environment that he or she is a danger to self or others? And then he says there's at least one probably apocryphal report that a man shot his boss for disturbing him in the middle of a video game. 
I'm not sure what the game it was, but if I find out, I'll pass that information along so we can avoid those immersed in that particular activity. On the other hand, it seems the two men had not quite seen eye to eye previously on other presumably more serious matters. He goes on saying, their even doctor is trying to curtail our fun. There's a report of a physician at the University of Nebraska Medical Center warning that video games can put serious stress on your nervous system. The result is a serious increase in the risk of stroke or heart attack. And he says, who would have thought mouse attack and heart attack could be linked together? Apparently the report is that blood pressure and heart rate can spike while playing video games, which is not a good thing. And the doctor feels that with no physical activity to release the stress, harmful effects may occur. Of course, the author says, there appears to be no general medical consensus that video games are going to do us in. But what if? He also notes there have been articles about the good side effects of playing games. Some say it can work out frustrations and violent tendencies safely by shooting the bad guys on the screen instead of real life. He then notes that there are companies that are starting to come out with X-rated video games, which he said is going to ramp up fears of those wanting to limit access of minors to any games. But he says it remains to be seen if anything like that will show up in the arcades. Kind of starting to wrap it up, he says the courts have not given us a lot of guidance in this extremely new area. And he says these type of cases are unlikely to go to trial and much less be appealed and reported on due to the relative minor penalties involved. But he does highlight a case from Mesquite, Texas that prohibited arcade game playing by minors after certain hours that made it all the way to the Supreme Court. But he said the court avoided deciding the constitutional issue of whether youngsters under 17 had the right to congregate. Traditionally, the high court, he said, never decides this constitutional issue unless it must. So it sent the case back to the lower court to explain whether state or federal law was used to strike down the law. And he kind of finishes up saying that although this means Supreme Court has not decided the issue, the federal circuit court did hold that such a law violates the freedom of association and the right to equal protection under the law which he says is a just result in this author's opinion. He says these type of laws are undoubtedly motivated by good intentions. It does appear that too much effort is being expended to keep others from having fun. Weren't lawmakers ever young? And he says if you've heard of these or similar cases, please send more information to him and a copy to Mike Harvey at Nibble. He says, while I know of no move to limit what we can do on our home computers, one must keep a wary eye on those who would protect us from ourselves. Today, the arcade... Tomorrow, dot, dot, dot. And that about does it for the nibble here. On the inside back cover, we have some tax software by Howardsoft, creatively named Tax Preparer. And the back cover is the Elephant Floppy Disk ad. This month in Mike's letter to the editor, they found some double entendres flying around soft talk. I'm finding it puzzling that so many authors of personal computer user documentation find it necessary to refer to the program disks as diskettes. I suspect this is not a word that the authors are comfortable using. In most of the manuals I have seen, they forget to use the longer word and begin referring to the disk as a disk. <coughs> I realize that disks come in many sizes, <coughs> but that does not seem to warrant using two different words to describe them. In fact, I can't imagine a situation in which a user would not know which <coughs> disk was being referred to. If someone can convince me that there is a compelling reason to distinguish between sizes of disks by calling one a disk and one a diskette, I am willing to accept the two different words. But I'm going to have some difficulty in using my diskettes. I don't have a diskette drive. Carol J. Manley, Issaquah, Washington. Thanks for joining me on this April Fool's edition of the Player Muscle Podcast. I did this as a love letter to all my Kansas Fest friends. 
as you know, I've attended Kansas Fest for the last, I don't know, four or five in-person ones and the last couple uh, virtual ones. Hopefully it'll be in person again this year. If you're a long-time listener to the podcast, you'll know I've talked about the Apple II quite a bit. That was my first computer I had in school. And then at Kansas Fest, I've got into the Apple II. You know, I've, I've written some stuff for the Apple II that I've demoed at Kansas Fest. I have super fond memories of the Apple II Plus. And, you know, honestly, had my family had, like, a boatload of money, we I would have preferred an Apple II Plus initially. And then, of course, when I got the Atari, that's when I realized I really liked the Atari better. But don't tell them at Kansas Fest, although I think they know. But at any rate, I had fun looking through these Apple II magazines. And, I don't know, if I had, like, infinite time, I would actually probably do an Apple II Plus podcast. You know, my nostalgia for the Apple II is really the Apple II Plus, not so much the Apple IIe, because by the time the Apple IIe's, like, were in school, I already had my Atari. And I'd never really had any, you know, hands-on programming time at the IIe. You know, I had some friends with the IIe, and we'd play games and whatever. But uh, the II Plus is really my nostalgia. So if I were to do the Shape Table podcast for real, I would start at the beginning of the Apple II Plus and go through probably now, you know, this episode is uh, December 82, and the II Plus is phased out pretty much here. You know, the IIe comes to market uh, in January of 83. So in some sense, this is the end of the Shape Table podcast. And if I were to do it again, I'd go back and start from the beginning. I hope you enjoyed this sort of excursion into the Apple II land. Next episode will be a 5200 special. And then again, I'll start alternating like regular player missile episodes and 5200 episodes. And looks like, yeah, five more 5200 episodes looks like. One for each quarter of 1983 and then probably a final one for 1984. So until next time, thanks as usual to Steph Animal for the theme song to the podcast. If you want to leave me some feedback comparing shape tables to player missile graphics, you can send me an email about it at feedback at playermissile.com. If you want to compare 1-bit sound versus the pokey, send me a tweet about it at Atari 8-bit games. And if you want to compare the speed of the disc 2 versus the speed of the 810, yeah, you can just keep that to yourself. Yeah.